Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Happy feet. Do you feel that way at the end of the day? Or are you dealing with pain when you wake up in the morning and can't wait to get home to take off your shoes and put your feet up? Well, pain, whether from tendonitis, fasciitis, arthritis, bunions, and more, can limit your ability to exercise and also make it harder to stay healthy with all sorts of medical conditions. Dr. Karen Yamaguchi, podiatrist at Kaiser Permanente's in the studio, ready to answer all of our questions on how to keep our feet happy and moving throughout life. You'll be able to join our conversation at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands 877-941-3689. But first in medical news, HMSA is trying to keep us healthy too. Their latest project, Blue Zones Project Hawaii, is an effort to apply the principles of promoting good health worldwide. Here to tell us more about how this is going to impact our local community is Elisa Yadao. Elisa, welcome to The Body Show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you know, Blue Zones, the ocean's blue, it's a big zone. What's going on here? So blue zones are actually places in the world that have been identified where people live longer and well. National Geographic explorer and uh, author Dan Buettner discovered them. And these places are in Greece, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, and interestingly enough, Loma Linda, California. And what Dan did was study these areas and, and discover that there are certain principles at work here, certain ways that the people live that result in them having longer, healthier lives. And his thought was, if the, that could be replicated and recreated, then all of us could live happier, healthier lives. And that's what he's done, and that's what we're hoping to bring to Hawaii. So now we know that genetics play a role. I mean, certainly there's a lot of the, the highest rate of people living healthily over the age of 100 is in Okinawa. Um, but, but those other areas that you mentioned, I mean, I'm kind of surprised. Loma Linda. It, yeah, it is surprising which one of these is not like the other. But in all of these areas, what Dan has discovered and research has borne out that People have certain things in common in all of these places. Movement's a part of their everyday life. They don't say, okay, I'm going to work all day and then I'm going to the, the, the gym. They're actually moving all day long. It's a part of their life. They have a real strong sense of purpose. They wake up in the morning and they know why they're here. Uh, they're very grounded in that way. They downshift regularly, so they don't work all the time. There are really uh, pronounced regular times in their life, in their day, really, when they downshift. They don't gorge themselves. They eat till they're about 80% full. They primarily have a plant-based diet, although there is some meat in it. Uh, they, Many of them enjoy a glass of red wine every day, and they're socially connected, so a lot of this is done as a celebration with friends and family. They are, many of them, and this is where the Loma Linda part comes in, part of a faith-based community or a community of shared values. And so with Loma Linda, there's a high concentration of Seventh-day Adventists there. They're very close and tied to their families. You'll see a lot of multi-generational households. And finally, it's called having the right tribe. So they are surrounded by friends who have the same kinds of interests they do. So Dan took a look at all of this and thought, can we recreate this in, in other communities? And, and did exactly that in Blue Zones communities where they institute these changes by making easy 
healthy choices, easy choices, with some pretty astounding results in terms of health, productivity, and, you know, we're HMSA, lower uh, health insurance claims. So we're looking at things like making walking or exercise part of your daily life, Mm -hmm. like going up and down the stairs instead of the elevator, walking to work or walking, maybe parking a little bit further away from the store if you're going there. But how are we supposed to integrate these principles into everyday life? I mean, multi-generational households, I think we've got that. And, the you know, we have a lot of people in Hawaii live with parents, live with grandparents. But, you know, downtime, I mean, you get in traffic on the H1. That's not downtime. No. That's it, crazy time. It, it's not. And some of these, you know, when uh, there's a lot of emphasis in Blue Zones on a built environment and in policy. So some of the changes that we're talking about when you talk about transforming communities are really over the long term. So as you, we have a great opportunity in Honolulu as they, they build transit-oriented development communities with a real emphasis on communities where people can live, work, and play. And so you don't need a car. You can actually walk to places where you want to go. Um, We're working now with employer groups where they're instituting many of these changes in the workplace. We're doing that at HMSA. Um, And then also working with restaurants and grocery stores where there will actually be in a grocery store a designated Blue Zones aisle where all of the food there is healthy, you know, it's easy, there are no sugary beverages, there's water. Or say in schools, one of the things that Dan discovered in his research is one of the best ways to take empty calories out of a kid's day, you just say you can't eat walking in the hallway or in the classroom and you immediately make a pretty significant change to their diet and their habits. So there's uh, a lot, there's a body of knowledge and information about how this is done, and we're hoping to find communities in Hawaii who want to enter into this work with us. So if somebody said, you know, that sounds great, I want to be part of it, I want to take on this challenge, how would they get more information? Where can they find out more about what a blue zone means and maybe initiate bringing this to their community? Thank you for that. You can get all the information about the project at hawaii.bluezonesproject.com. We're actually going to be in uh, and around the state in the next week holding informational sessions about Blue Zones. That information is also on the website, but uh, this Thursday we'll be on the Big Island. Monday we're on Maui, and next Tuesday we'll be here on Oahu. And then finally, uh, later in October, uh, week after next, we'll be back on the Big Island. But if you go to the website, you can get all that information, or you can come to the HMSA website and get there as well. And are you trying to find communities that want to bring the Blue Zone to that area? Is that the informational meetings that you're talking about? Exactly, because the way that this work is successful if it's really embraced by the community, and it's something that the community wants to do. So there's there areas where people take ownership, like if you're already working, say, in workplace wellness, and then you might be interested in that, or if you're uh, someone in the community who's already working on, say, school gardens or nutrition, then you'd be interested in that. And if there is enough uh, support within a community and people working in these different areas, that's one of the things that we assess when we determine where we're going to go. And once you find the communities that you're going to be working with, what you're going to be doing as part of 
the Blue Zones project supporting these communities is what exactly? How is it if a group says, okay, I want to be a Blue Zone community and they have enough involvement that everybody says, Mm -hmm. yes, we want to do that. What's the next step? They say we'll do it. And what sort of partnership and information and assistance will they get through HMSA to help them? We will come to the community if they're selected as a Blue Zones community with actual Blue Zones resource. So it's people who are trained to create Blue Zones communities, and there were our goal is always to hire people from within that community. And so there's a whole resource with people and staff and uh, guides on how to do this and how it's been done in other communities. So the resource is really the knowledge that we'll bring to the communities and work in partnership with the community to do this. And then maybe be able to, are you going to be doing some measures looking at whether or not people are more active, Mm -hmm. if there's a community goal of weight loss or a community goal of exercise or something related to, you mentioned, you know, HMSA can monitor health insurance premiums. How are people going to know if it's successful and it's going to work for them? One of the things that we're asking people to do is take what we're called the what calling what's called the well-being assessment which really gives you a picture of where you are in terms of your health and well-being and it shows you where you're doing well and where there are areas for improvement people take that now we monitor for a year we take it again and that's how we track whether there's been progress and i will say that in communities that have instituted blue zones they see really uh, significant improvements in Albert Lee, Minnesota, which was the first Blue Zones community. They've managed to lower health care claims for city workers after a year. Absenteeism's dropped by 21%. People are more productive. In the Beach Cities District in Southern California, which is Redondo, Hermosa, and Manhattan Beach, they've actually seen obesity rates drop and smoking rates uh decreased by 30%. So for HMSA, you know, obviously our interest is really in, uh, we're never going to address the issue of healthcare costs if we don't actually address the issue of health. And so that's the transformation that we're working towards is to have a state of Hawaii improve in health and well-being overall, because that's truly, truly the sustainable way to make differences to the healthcare delivery system. Well, and certainly I think everyone needs to take a bit of responsibility for their own health risks, for their own ability to stay healthy, for what they're doing. And all all the medical centers really try and have a push for their employees. Hey, listen, be healthy. Don't mm-hmm. be smoking. Do some exercise. A lot of the major groups sponsor events like the American Heart Association partners with, with Queens and, you know, Straub and Kapiolani have a women's 10K and Kaiser supports the Great Aloha Run. And so there's a lot of different areas where medical centers can help. Are there particular areas in the communities that you're looking at? Or is there any spotlight you want to try this out first in a particular location? Because medical centers can only do so much. But really, you're right. It's a community effort. The people in the communities who have to say, we want to be part of this and we want to take advantage of these resources. Is there any particular hotspot that you're hoping to have come up in some of these meetings that really wants to be part of this? I think it really all revolves around, is this something that the community wants to do and does the community have the resource and the willingness to do it? And so if when you go and visit the Blue Zones website, what what it will tell you is that there are specific areas where there has to be some demonstrated leadership already. So it's business, education, built environment, 
uh, food, and a lot of the things that we've talked about already. So it's really not a specific hotspot, but more a community where people are already doing this work and they're ready to have more resource. We have been working on the island of Kauai for the last year under uh, and in partnership with Mayor Carvalho. He's got a fabulous, um, he calls it Holo Holo 2020, which is his vision for the island, has a lot of components of health and well-being. And so we've been working there for a little bit now, but that's really what we're looking for is community readiness and community willingness. Well, and it sounds like it's a great idea, really, partnering with the people who provide the health care through the insurance coverage, and also the community who wants to make sure that they can do as much as they can to stay as healthy as possible. So it sounds exciting. And so it looks like the Blue Zones might be something we all hear more about, certainly within the next week in the various locations you mentioned, and then also on the website. So you said you can go there through HMSA, and you can also just look up Blue Zones Project Hawaii. It's get a lot more information. Hawaii.bluezonesproject.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Elisa, and telling us a little bit more about Blue Zones Hawaii and why we're going to be hearing a little bit more about this. And hey, if somebody wants to be part of it, this is this is another initiative to really help the community stay healthier. Then we can add to the list. You know, you mentioned Okinawa, you mentioned Greece, <laughs> you mentioned Loma Linda, and we want to add Hawaii, Hawaii to That's that right. list. The state of Hawaii. The entire state. You got it. Well, thanks for being on the show to share that information with us. Thanks so much. It was really a pleasure being here. All right. Well, you know, the first step in staying healthy is doing more exercise. And walking can be a big part of that. So Dr. Karen Yamaguchi's in the studio. She's a podiatrist at Kaiser Permanente. And she's used to hearing about how people tell them how much their feet hurt, has some good tips on how to keep that from getting worse over time and keeping moving throughout our lives, Dr. Karen. Yes. Welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kozak, for having me here. Absolutely. Now, tell me, what is the number one complaint that you hear about for people who come in with pain in their feet? By far, the number one problem is heel pain or plantar fasciitis. This is a pain usually with the first few steps in the morning or after rest. They say they when it first starts, they stand and it takes them a few minutes or a few steps for it to go away. Lots of people. I had three people today tell me they get up, they feel like there's a knife that's stabbing the bottom of their heel, and they take a few steps and they feel better. But boy, that first couple of steps is, is just horrific. Why are they getting it? That's just a sign of inflammation. And usually it's a cause, um, the inflammation is caused from overuse. So when you're rested, the inflammation, the tissues get cold and stiff. And when you first get up, it's you have to restretch it out and you have to warm it up. So that's just a sign of inflammation. Can you ever make it go away? Of course you can make it go away. This problem gets better 95% of the time non-surgically. So there is a treatment pyramid with this. So the first line of treatment is always resting it, anti-inflammatories, stretching, um, and modification of your activities. So, like, let's talk a little bit. So you said, you know, because a lot of people come in and tell me my heel hurts and, you know, maybe they have a spur, maybe they don't, but it started recently. And you tell them, okay, are you taking any anti-inflammatories? And maybe they are. Rest is often difficult because if they have to walk a lot, it's part of their job or even just to get up and get around. But the stretching is really, I think, the key. 
when we talk about stretching, what are some easy things people can do if they have this heel pain to start working on the stretches so that this doesn't become a long-time problem for them? Uh, That's a very um, great point. Um, The stretch is important uh, for treatment and also for prevention later on. And stretching is very important to do it three times a day, just five minutes, 15 minutes a day. When you first get up in the morning, in the middle of the day, and at night. And you're just talking about maybe a few minutes in every part of the day. You want to, sh- and there are many websites. If you look on the websites about plantar fascia stretches, which will give you different techniques. You can do towels against the wall. You can do the runner stretch, um, and you want to do it with your knees straight and your knees flexed. But the point, the importance is doing it every day. As we age, we do not get more flexible. We just get more stiff. So we have to build the stretching regimen into our life and our lifestyles. And it's not just our feet, it's our whole body, really. You're blowing my Monday. As we age, we get <laughs> less flexible. Okay, well, we can't argue against that. Now, some people talk about getting a golf ball or a tennis ball, doing a stretch around that to really help loosen up that plantar fascia, which is kind of like the palm of your foot. So if you look at your palm and you picture walking on that, that's kind of what your foot's like. And and they, they use those sorts of devices because, you know, everybody's got a golf ball or you can get one or you can get, you know, a tennis ball and use that to help them stretch. Is that is that a good way to sort of stretch out that plantar fascia? Absolutely. That's actually um, considered like a deep friction massage. So it's physical therapy that you can do at home. And it's a great way um, you can do that um, like you said, with a ball, and also afterwards to ice it down. And if you want to do two things in once, so you can get a frozen water bottle, and you can massage with that 10, 15 minutes. And when you're done, just throw the frozen water ba- bottle back in the freezer so you have it ready to go. That's an easy way to do it, frozen water bottle. Now, do your shoes have any impact? I mean, you see some of these over-the-counter shoe inserts for heel pain, for extra heel cushioning, shock absorption. Why do people get the plantar fascia other than just getting older? And do their shoes have anything to do with it? That's a great point. And usually when patients come in, the first thing um, I ask them is what has changed? Because usually there's a change in either the activities. They started to, let's start exercise again. So they did too much too fast. They changed their shoe wear. They decided they weren't going to wear high heels anymore, so they just started to go to start wearing flats. So when they started to wear flats, there was an increased pull to the heel. Um, it could have been weekend warrior type injury. Um, a recent, they were resting for a while from illness and they were starting to get up. So, um, but the point is, when they're having the pain, they're inflamed. And we, like you said, this is an overuse injury. We want it let. We want to let it rest, but. Because it's your foot, it's very hard to let it rest. So you look at the art supports as a way to give you support, gives your body a, a, a way to rest it. Um, do you have to do this for the rest of your life? No. Once the pain goes away, you may be able to gradually get away from that. But during the, the painful, inflamed time period, you want to have extra support to let that area rest. That's what the art support does. It's a good point. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Karen Yamaguchi. We're talking about happy feet. We heard earlier about Blue Zones and HMSA and pretty much Kaiser and, and Queens and every medical center wants to make sure that people stay healthy. But what do you do if your feet hurt so much you just don't want to walk after the end of the day? So when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some other common foot complaints and how do you know if you're wearing the right pair of shoes? Is it the right size? 
size, the right width, what happens to our feet as we get older. And we're going to figure out some more about how to take care of some of these things so you can keep walking no matter how old you are. You can join our conversation at 941-3689. Toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Although he's a young artist whose sound is rooted in the traditional country blues of long ago, Chris Thomas King is very much a contemporary performer, able to create what he calls a rap and blues fusion. He's a multiple award winner with movie and TV credits, and he'll be performing live in our studio tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Michael Titterden here. One of the favorite parts of my job is getting to listen to really smart people like you. You may think we're talking at you all the time, but really, you're signaling back to us constantly in your emails, over social media, and with your many shows of support. When the phone lines open for Celebration 2014, we'll be asking for your comments, but why wait? Let us hear from you loud and clear today. Say something smart with an early pledge. We're listening. Aloha and welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Karen Yamaguchi. We're talking about happy feet and how you can make sure that the shoes you're wearing aren't causing you more pain that is making you feel worse so you can't do any exercise or activity. Now, we were just talking about plantar fasciitis, a unique problem that occurs at the bottom of your foot that can sometimes cause a lot of discomfort. And now we're going to talk a little bit about problems that people might have with Achilles tendonitis. Now, that's sort of related. We talked a little bit about heel spurs, Achilles tendonitis. Achilles tendonitis is very related to the plantar fasciitis. Those two structures actually intertwine at behind the heel bone, and usually they both are tight. So the treatments are very similar in terms of stretching, wearing a slight heel to take the stretch off the, take the tension off of the Achilles tendon and the plantar fascia. Activity modifications in terms of to take away the strains, you want to avoid squatting. You want to avoid inclines. Uh, Okay. So now when you have this inflammation of the Achilles tendon, that's that tendon that goes down the back of your heel. And so... When you have that sort of situation occur, stretches again can help, anti-inflammatories can help. Is it permanent? Does it last a long time? How does that work? That's a good question. It depends on the patient's uh, activity level. So if they're on their feet or they're very active playing sports, it'll probably last a lot longer, especially if they don't let it rest. Um, it gets better faster if it you treat it when it first happens during the acute phase in the first month. So the importance there is to let it rest in, when it's acutely injured in the first month. If you, you continue to play and you don't modify activities and you let it go and it becomes more of a chronic problem, it will take twice as uh, long for it to go away. Now, you mentioned this common theme with the plantar fasciitis with Achilles tendonitis. A lot of it has to do with rest. And so if your foot hurts, if your heel hurts, if your Achilles tendon is really inflamed, you got to give it a chance to heal. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, when the patients come in to be seen, this is all part of the, the discussion. Everybody's goals are different. And I say, if you want it to get better faster, you have to let it rest. And we can start off with the anti-inflammatories, the stretching first, the rest, changing shoe wear, sometimes the night splints. If 
and I tell them if you come back, you're not better, then the treatment regimen has to change. And if it's and if all that is not uh, making it get better, then we talk about sometimes immobilization, physical therapy, and at worst, sometimes we, we put patients in casts to let it completely rest. And that's one way to do it is you can't move your foot. So if you want to avoid yep. that, you know, address it early. It's always much better to do that. Now, let's talk about footwear for a minute because you mentioned earlier that heel problems could be related to a change in shoes. You mentioned going from, you know, heels to flats or certain types of changes in, you know, how often you're on your feet. How do you know what size your feet are? I mean, real basic, how do you know how big are your feet? Do you need a wide, an extra wide, a narrow? What's the easiest way to get an accurate shoe size? Probably the easiest and fastest way to get your shoe size is going to a shoe store. They have one of those measuring devices. You can step on it, and it'll tell you the length and the width of your your feet. So if you were born and, like, you, you were a teenager and you had, like, a size 8.5 narrow and, you know, add 20 years, you're so not going to be an 8.5 narrow anymore. Do most people have an expansion of their foot over time? Yes, um, that is true because as we, especially... I mean, lots of things expand over time. You just told us we're not as flexible. (laughs) So now when we talk about expanding, yes, the feet can expand. What sort of shoe changes or foot changes do we see that changes our size? So actually when your foot is expanding, what's happening is your arches are falling. Uh, a lot of you times. are so not really motivational on Monday. <laughs> your foot expands, your arches fall, you become less flexible. But that's true. You know, if you have this high arch and it starts to fall. So is that a bad thing? Is that just a, it happens with age, just live with it kind of thing? Well, if you don't have pain, then it's probably okay. So we see a skewed view of the population. We are seeing people who are painful. So if they are, they have pain, they have problems, then we're going to um, give them advice or uh, advice in terms of what's going to make them feel better. So if you are painful, then yes, you should wear better supportive shoes. The art supports, another thing that the art supports do is they bring the foot, the ground to your foot instead of your foot falling to the ground, especially if, if you have fallen arches. That's a good way to put it. Brings the ground to your foot, not your foot falling to the ground. So do we see people who go like larger, like an eight and a half to a nine and now wide? Or do you just generally see that that people get wider feet, or what happens? Both, um, but usually they get longer and wider. Um, again, because the f- not only the arches fall, but they spread out, they, so they do get wider. So wider and bigger in size. This is so wonderful to hear on a Monday. I'm getting older, less flexible, and all sorts of things. All right, well, we've got a caller on the line. Let's talk to Kalika from Hawaii. Kalika, tell me some good news on a Monday. What can we do for you? Well, I've uh, become a health nut the last five years. I've read over 100 books in the last five years, among which was The Blue Zone and, of course, The Okinawan Diet. So in my particular circumstance, I've gotten back to my high school weight. I weigh more than 100 pounds less than I did a few years ago. Uh, I think the Okinawans are correct in that now I don't even own a chair, so I'm forced to get up and get down. Uh, I exercise, I stretch all the time, and the first thing I do before I even get out of bed is I put my feet together and I massage my feet, and uh, because I tend to be on the cusp of perhaps being diabetic, therefore, you know, I want to keep the blood flow, and um, I just, I just think that uh, you know, following our, our, especially our friends in Okinawa 
who even even when they live to be in their 90s and hundreds, which they frequently do, uh, they are in incredible health, and it's because they are. They're, you know, they live on the tatami mats, unlike most of the folk in Japan who are, I would exclude from all these comments. So just the people in Okinawa are the people to follow. So the thing is, in my own case, the first question I have, doctors, is, is Wolf's Law still considered to be true? I'm sorry, you mentioned Wolf's Law? Wolf's Law refers to the principle that every change in the form and function uh, of of the bone leads to changes in the in its internal architecture. Well, I mean, when you think about it, if you fracture a bone right. and it has to remodel, you right. do wind up changing the architecture of your bone during that remodeling process. Right. If the same forces that were present before, muscles, gravity, etc., are pulling on that bone, then eventually it may remodel itself to establish the function required of that bone. So, okay, so that may still be something that I think would be relevant in medicine. What was the second question you had? Uh, yeah, I was wondering uh, if you uh, ladies would, would comment on, on the role of supplements. You know, one of the things they found out when they when I studied the populations of Japan was that they found all these people in their 80s, 90s, et cetera, they were, like, they were acting like teenagers, and then they, they analyzed the soil and the vegetables and the, uh, produce, and they found out that these substances in the soil were high in hyaluronic acid. So my question is, do you think that, you know, these, you know, these substances uh, among which are like this hyaluronic acid helps to keep uh, one healthy? Great question, Kalika. And, you know, supplements are something that a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on. And, and Dr. Karen, I think when we see people who have arthritis, when we see people who have other degenerative problems with their joints, very often there are folks who want to know, you know, does glucosamine work? Does chondroitin work? Does hyaluronic acid work? Does MSM work? What about bioastin? And I'll tell you what I tell some of my folks, and I, and I bet you say something similar is that as long as you don't have any other major medical problems or medicines that those supplements are going to affect, then try them. Absolutely. Document your symptoms before you do. Take them for at least a good four or six weeks or so. Document your symptoms, improvement, or lack of improvement afterwards. And if you really don't see yourself that you're getting any benefit, then you may not be getting what it is that you expect from that supplement. And it's very hard to measure the null response. It's very hard to say, well, I don't feel any worse, so therefore it must be working. But do you have folks who often ask you, you know, do some of these over-the-counter joint supplements help them? And in your practice, do you see folks who, who feel like they get better when they use them? I agree with you 100%. And I explained to them that there's no FDA studies, so these are supplements um, that may be helpful, or, and there are reports that uh, people say they help, and I, I agree with you, if they don't cause any side effects and there are no problems, then um, they've been ar- around long enough, so uh, I don't see any problems with them using it. Sure, try it, and if you feel like it works, then okay. I mean, there are some people who I've had say, you know, hyaluronic acid works really well for joint health, and I've had other people say glucosamine does wonders, and then I have some folks who say I tried it, didn't like it, didn't feel any better, and really it's more 
Because supplements are not FDA regulated and there's no uh, traditional clinical studies, it doesn't mean that there aren't studies. They're just not necessarily recognized in the traditional medical world. And so a lot of folks have, they've done reports on people doing very well with some of these supplements. And if it's not harming you, okay, go for it. I mean, there could be a role for that that we may not yet understand. And there may come a time when there are more studies that are recognized in traditional medicine. And there you go. So it's an alternative treatment, but it may complement what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, I tell patients we don't fully understand pain and the pain pathways. So um, there are multidisciplinary approaches and the supplements. Sometimes you hear about acupuncture, but if they work, then certainly um, and they don't cause any adverse effects. I don't, I don't see any problem with that. Sure. All right. Well, we talked about footwear and, and measuring your foot. And are there any particular type of, of shoes that are better than others? Like I, I always recall people saying, listen, don't wear four-inch heels. That's so not good for your foot later in life. Do you find that it's better to wear certain types of shoes that, that maybe not necessarily wearing rubber slippers all the time. Is there something that I should look for when I'm buying a pair of shoes that I can find in all different types of brands based on what it is that I'm, I need? Is there? Do I always want to look for a good heel? Do I want to look for arch support? How do I know? Um, that's a very good question. Um, it depends on what you need in terms of um, when you, and that's a point in terms of if you're not quite sure, I would say go see a podiatrist and let them evaluate you to see if you have tight tendons, to see if you have any problems. But in general, if you like um, the feel of arch supports, I mean, there are a lot of even slippers or flip-flops um, that have built-in arches. One um, that we find, and it's even on QVC, is the OrthoHeel sandals, and they've been around for several years, and now they've ex- they have expanded. And in general, as far as heel heights, we want we tell ladies to stay below two inches, um, because if you go to um, studies have shown if you wear three-inch heel higher, you're increasing the pressure to your forefoot by seventy percent. So, and again, going back to the aging as we get older. I Sorry. Know. You're smiling. That's okay. It happens. Um, you know, you want to, you, there's a balance between stability and cushion. So you want to have well-cushioned shoes to give you the cushion because we lose the fat pad underneath the ball of our feet. Well, at least we lose fat from somewhere. Okay. We just talked about expanding <laughs> and widening. All right. So when you get older, you lose the fat pad on your foot. You do lose it from somewhere. Okay. So so you don't want to have all that pressure on that ball of your foot right in the front because you don't have that cushion that you used to. Right. And it's a lever arm. If you think about it, the ball of your foot is at the end of a lever, which is your foot and your leg. When you have a tight Achilles tendon, you increase, you have a lot of pressure to the ball of your foot already. So again, by wearing a slight heel, whether it's an inch or inch and a half, you're reducing the tension at the ball of your foot. So people who have ball of foot pain, um, you know, this is a very important um, point. So get different shoes. Now it's funny because I have a pair of those ortho heel slippers that I can never find because someone else in my house, <clears throat> brother, tends to be wearing them. I've actually sent him pictures. and Look at your feet. Are you wearing my shoes? It's my own fault because we have the same shoe size. But that's actually a brand that I, I've had and it and it works really well. I mean, I like, I find that I like that arch support right. in slippers. And you have to really look for it. It's not necessarily going to be in every pair of shoes that you try on. And I did learn a lesson, and you'll probably laugh, and everyone learns these lessons. You know, don't buy cheap shoes. 
Yes. Like, just don't do it. Like, if it's on sale for 5 or $10, <laughs> really, it looks cute. Your feet look cute, but they're not going to feel cute after you wear those for a while. So there's a couple of things you shouldn't skimp on. A good mattress, definitely, and good shoes. So, you know, if you're looking for a good pair of shoes... There's a lot of different shoe stores around that can actually help you pick shoes that work best for you. You mentioned a podiatrist can actually give you the right sizing and almost prescribe. I mean, if you're diabetic, you may have coverage and prescription coverage for your shoes. Correct. So there are some places that actually will measure your feet and do a good assessment to see what kind of shoes you need. And don't be surprised if the size is not what you think you are. Exactly. Um, you know, a, a quick assessment, you can actually take an outline of your foot. And I think most of us can go into our closets. And when you put your shoe next to it, if you see your toes hanging out or, you know, parts of your foot, you know that they are s- too small. And many of us are wearing those pointed shoes and you're wondering about hammer toes and bunions. Well, that's Yeah, that's the next thing is that's the other problem I see a lot of. Bunions, they're everywhere. They're, and luckily we live somewhere where you can wear sandals and kind of let them sort of hang out, you know, so yes. they literally hang out of your shoe. But why do people get bunions and how can I never get those? Because they're not very comfortable looking. Well, it's a multifactorial problem. Genetics is one for sure. So some people, unfortunately, um, you they have juvenile bunions, so they're born with them pretty much. Um, you're born with the hypermobility or the, the too flexible foot. So again, the, the arches are falling, they're splaying. So part of the splaying is you're developing that bunions where the bones are shifting and the big toe goes inward and that bone just behind the big toe is, point, is protruding inward. So- so you actually have a bone that's causing it. Yes. And if you wear shoes that so don't fit. That are pointed or. That could make it worse. Yes. And then you got to wear the sandals with your bunion hanging out. With orthotics. Now, if it doesn't hurt you, can you just live with it? Uh, yes, you can. Um, in terms of, you know, we, we certainly advise patients to uh, do conservative measures first, wider shoes, padding. But um, you can live with it. People with bunion deformities, although, um, do have other problems associated with the bunion deformities where they can get pain underneath the second metatarsal or the bone next to the, it because when that bunion is shifting, it's no longer bearing enough weight, so the, sh- the pressures shift to the other parts of the foot. So if so, sometimes patients coming in, they have that problem, and then they start getting these overlapping toes. Oh, yeah, the one jumps on top of the other one? Yes. Okay. So it's a domino effect. So if they're symptomatic, those are easy ones as far as to to treat and to say, well, you may need some kind of surgical intervention, but not everybody needs surgery. Yes. Well, that's good to hear because not everybody wants to know if they've got that bunion, they need to have a surgery. When we come back, we're going to talk with another caller and we're going to talk some more about some other common foot problems. What about... People with diabetes, what what happens to their feet and how can they make sure that it doesn't, infections, ulcers, and otherwise? You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Karen Yamaguchi from Kaiser, and we'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Online dating sites use algorithms to make their matches. Doesn't mean that makes it easier to find love, though. The grass is always greener. There has to be somebody else that's just a little bit more interesting or a little bit of a better match. I'm Kai Rizdal, matchmaking in Silicon Valley. Next time on Marketplace, we'll have the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's all from APM. 
the scene at program. 6, following The Body Show. Some of my favorite programming on Hawaii Public Radio, of course, by Mark's Cafe. We always enjoy what Bert and Ryan are talking about and how they spread the news about local technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship here in the islands. It's important to support Hawaii Public Radio because it's a chance for voices to be heard. It's a chance for the community to tell their story, and it's a chance for everyone to learn a little more about what they're interested in. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Karen Yamaguchi. We're talking about happy feet and how you can have those. Dr. Karen is a podiatrist at Kaiser Permanente, and before the break, we were talking about bunions. Do you have to repair them? Do they change the rest of your feet, and and is it important to do? And not everyone needs surgery, an important thing to hear, particularly as we get older and our feet do all sorts of fun things. Now, we have a very patient caller on the line. We have Sachi from the Big Island. Sachi, welcome to the Body Show. Hi. What can we do for you? Sitting here pounding on coconuts trying to get... Anyway, anybody need chickens, call me. <laughs> um, I had, um, my, by the way, my mother had bunion surgery, and she was so happy after she had her surgery. She was thrilled. Can you well, it's okay? good to know that, yeah, because sometimes people wonder, will it make a big difference in how the feet feel after they have a procedure? So your mom had the surgery, and she felt better afterwards? Oh, my gosh. She was so, her whole life, she was miserable. She had these things sticking off the side of her feet and she had the surgery and she was so happy afterward. I just want to emphasize how it changed her life. It was really awful. And um, she waited until she was in her late 40s and, and when she had it, she was so happy. Well, that sounds like a rousing endorsement for doing it if you need to. Now, you have a question about your feet? I stepped on a rusty nail a couple weeks ago and I went to the got a tetanus shot because I haven't had one in a while and um, I soaked my foot and did all this stuff and then for some weird reason my toes started blistering and then I popped the blisters and put some antibiotic solution on it and I just wondered why my toes would (laughs) blister after stepping on a rusty nail instead of my foot swelling up or something is it because I soaked it and Salt water, hot salt water. Why would your toes get all blistered after stepping on a rusty nail? It just it seems so weird. Well, it's a good question, Sachi, and I think that uh, when you're when you stepped on the nail, unfortunately, it probably introduced not just the rust and the actual nail, but potentially a whole bunch of other things. Dr. Karen, yes. there's a concern about infection here. Absolutely. Um, we worry about, especially if you were wearing shoe, um, shoes or even if you're outside, you, you're worried about the bacteria. And depending on how deep the puncture wound is, um, you could have introduced the bacteria to a tendon, which is which is connected to your toe. So the worry when you talk about a blister, um, we worried about infection, frankly. So that is probably something you need to be seen for um, probably sooner than later. 
All right, Sachi. So that's the word from the expert is, you know, when you get blisters, you got to worry about infection. Soaking them in salt, good idea. Maybe not enough. It's time to make sure you get it checked out by your primary care provider, possibly even seeing a podiatrist if necessary. Now, that segues right into diabetes because one of the big concerns we have about people with diabetes is developing an infection of the foot. Why is that? Why is infection such a big deal when you have diabetes? Uh, several fold. One of the reasons uh, f- with diabetics is that they don't, many do not have the, um, th- this proper sensation that's from having the diabetes. We call it neuropathy. And so they, they have this open wound and they're walking around it and, and they don't feel pain until there's actually an infection. Um, pain is actually a good thing to have. It, it's a protective mechanism. It tells us that there's something wrong and we need to get it checked. Well, and it means the nerve is working somewhere. Yeah. If you're having that neuropathy of your foot and you don't feel that there's a problem, you may not look. And then if at least if you feel pain, you know, okay, I'm going to look at it. Something's going on. So what are some of the things that people with diabetes uh, need to do on a daily basis to make sure that they don't get an infection? Well, obviously, they need to check their feet every day. We prefer patients to wear um, shoes and socks. White socks is better because if you can't not bend down and see the bottom of your feet, you can at least check your socks for drainage, for blood. And if you see that, then you know that there's probably some, some cut, an opening, or something going on with your foot. If you cannot see, you can at least have a family member to help you. If you... Um, if you see redness, swelling, again, those are signs of infection. Those are concerns that you need that need to be addressed immediately, whether you go to your PCP or if you have a podiatrist, you, you go in to be seen. And I also tell patients on when if we are closed and we're not available, urgent care or even the emergency room. Now, you mentioned a really important point because a lot of us like to go barefoot. If you have diabetes, you probably shouldn't. No, never. Not even at home. There's broken glasses, glass at home. Um, even what if nails. you can feel your feet? What if you don't have neuropathy? What if you don't have that problem with the nerves and you have diabetes? Should you still just, just as a rule, just don't go barefoot? That's actually a very good point. If you're, you know, if you don't have neuropathy and your circulation is great, that's the other good point. Circulation. There that's you go. right. Um, then probably you can. You're just like a normal. Uh, just like everybody else, you could just, you know, be careful when you're walking outdoors, but in your own house, probably be okay. Right. Because if you have normal sensation and something is sharp, something is too hot, you'll feel it and you'll, you'll automatically avoid that. And like you said, circulation is the other issue. Yes. Sensation and circulation. You got it. You can go barefoot. You don't have it. You better be careful. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Lynn from Kauai. Lynn, welcome to the body show. Aloha to you guys. Aloha. Aloha. How are you doing today? Oh, it's a lovely day over here. We're not having the rain yet. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to, to vent a little minor thing is that I injured my back very badly back in 1995. And as a consequence of that, I have great trouble with my feet. But it's not really my feet. It's my back. And what happens is I'll get cramps in my legs. And I have one foot that sometimes involuntarily like wants to point at the wall very uncomfortable, but it, it also tends to give me pain in my feet. That's why plantar fasciitis or tendonitis, and often it's because my muscles are just tired from being yanked like that, and uh, <clears throat> so I've been to foot doctors and gone to therapists, and they treat the foot, 
and they, they're not treating, you know, I'll try and be patient and tell them, if you could just help me adjust so this would stop pinching, it would really help my feet a lot. And so sometimes, you know, the cause is more than just the foot. Does that make sense? Absolutely, Lynn. You bring up a really good point. And Dr. Karen, you're shaking your head, yeah. Because if they see you, I guess the presumption is they need a podiatrist. And and if it really is coming from somewhere else, treating the feet, like Lynn said, isn't really going to fix it. Absolutely. Um, That's a very, very good point. People don't realize, or if you think about it, all the nerves to our feet are connected to our back. So when people are, they come in, they're complaining of burning type pain, weakness, uh, cramping, pain at rest. These are all pain caused by nerves. And many, so I'll ask them, do you have back problems? And fortunately, if it is, you know, uh, I do have them referred to see a neurologist or have their back checked. But the uh, one thing to realize with nerve pain, unfortunately, we talk about what causes chronic pain. The nerve issues are one because sometimes the nerves um, cannot heal 100%. And I tell patients, that's why when people who have spinal cord injuries or they ha- if they have strokes, sometimes they have deficits because the nerves sometimes are permanently damaged. Yeah, that's exactly what's happened to me. So, yeah, in any case, that's, that's another thing that's hard to explain to people sometimes, that you constantly hurt. Yes. And, and, you know, I don't want to take medication for that, so I do the best I can. And, you know, but every now and then <laughs> I get cranky. So okay. I apologize to everybody, and thank you for this show. It was very good. Appreciate thank you. it. Well, thanks for calling in, Lynn, because you brought up a very good point. Just because your foot hurts does not mean that's the only thing that's going on, and if you just treat the foot, you might ignore something going on elsewhere. And, I'm, you know, it's good that you're an advocate for yourself, Lynn, because it sounds like you need to be for people to understand what's going on with you. All right, we've got another caller on the line. We have Margaret from the Big Island. Margaret, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Um, thank you for being there. Um, I've had foot pain for about 15 to 16 years, and um, I think I, it was caused initially from me doing a lot of uh, moving something, you know, for a time being of a, a business and uh, using wrong shoes. And I, I was diagnosed with plantar fasciitis, and um, I went to two podiatrists, and um, it eventually got better, but I still have foot pain, and it it isn't a classic foot pain with waking up in the morning. It's like I feel like they're inflamed, and I wake up in the middle of the night, and I put um, creams on my feet to go back to sleep. Um, what would you say about inflammation and your feet? It's a great question, Margaret, and I hope you just heard Lynn, because one of the first things that I thought of when you mentioned that is, is it really just your feet? You were doing a lot of moving, a lot of activity. Could this really be your back? I don't know, Dr. Karen, what do you think? It might, I mean, plantar fasciitis has a limited time element. You feel it, you fix it, it feels better. It usually, I wouldn't think it would wake you up in the middle of the night. I agree with you. Um, Most um, people with plantar fasciitis, the problem goes away after a year, year and a half, with or without treatment, actually. Treatment just tries to get you better faster. When you're talking about 16-year history of pain, again, we're talking about chronic pain, you worry, and pain at rest, pain at night that wakes you up, we worry about nerves. So one of the things could be your back, or or there's an entity called tarsal tunnel syndrome, which is impingement or entrapment of the nerve just on the inside of your ankle. It's like having carpal tunnel syndrome, 
but it's of your called, foot. Yes, but it's called tarsal tunnel syndrome. So that is one thing I would think about. Um, it's a clinical exam. M- many people do not understand what tarsal tunnel syndrome is, and sometimes that's something that can be diagnosed in EMG nerve conduction study. So there's some help, Margaret. You might be able to do some testing and get a little bit more information about what's going on with your foot to get a better diagnosis because it shouldn't be the same thing for 15 or 16 years. So it's a really good point. And, you know, Lynn, I hope you're still listening. Thanks to you for really expanding the view. It's not just the foot. It could be coming from somewhere else or it could be another syndrome like, you know, carpal tunnel or the foot or tarsal tunnel, uh, something that can be evaluated or even arthritis. Arthritis, I know. Let's, that's, it's that getting older thing you were bumming me out with earlier. <laughs> All right. Let's talk with Chuck from Honolulu. Chuck, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Hello there. What can we do for you today? Yeah, I've had a similar pain in both feet uh, for many years now, and uh, even in my ankles. And I, I suspect it has to do with arthritis, but I'm not certain it's about that. Funny. And uh, assuming it was that, what would be the remedy for uh, that condition? It's a good question. You know, can you have arthritis of your foot? Even the tarsal tunnel syndrome that we talked about earlier with uh, with Margaret from the Big Island. What do you do about it? What do you do about it, Dr. Karen? How do you fix it? Can well, you? First of all, you probably need to be seen and get a, a proper diagnosis because if there's arthritis, um, again, that's there are two entities that cause chronic pain, and the other one is the tarsal tunnel nerve type problems, and the other is arthritis. So if you have, so if you think if we're talking about a non-surgical option, immobilization will be helpful. If it's pain around the ankle, the arch supports, and also uh, I recommend ankle braces and even high tops to immobilize the ankle, restrict the motion, see if that helps. And does that work for either one of those things? Yeah tarsal tunnel or arthritis? If it's around the ankle, yes, or even the rear foot, yes. You know how you sometimes do shots for carpal tunnel? Do you do shots for tarsal tunnel? Yes, and it's the same in terms of it. Um, what we find with, what, what I find with tarsal tunnel, it usually doesn't last very long. The problem with tarsal tunnel, which is different than carpal tunnel, is we walk on our feet. We don't walk on our hands. So it's the overuse, the motion. When, when we treat carpal tunnel, the reason we, I'm talking about carpal tunnel because people usually know what carpal tunnel is. You wear braces to immobilize the wrist to let it rest, letting, letting that nerve rest. While in the feet, it's hard to immobilize the legs, except if you're talking about a cam walker boot. And if a patient comes in with severe pain, we do immobilize it. And from there, as they get better, what do we do? Recommend the arch supports, ankle braces, or even high tops to, uh, to restrict motion. So it's really that stabilization of the foot to limit An ankle. the chronic pain, which could be associated with the movement. Well, that's good to know that it doesn't have to be surgery. There are other things that can be done for it. And uh, I, I wish you the best of luck, Chuck, because, you know, that's the other thing we're hearing is a lot of people saying, hey, I've had this for 10, 15, you know, 16 years. It sounds like there's a lot of people having foot pain and they just live with it and they don't really do much about it, maybe because they don't know there's something they can do. Right. I mean, part of the, I suggest they going to be evaluated because it's a clinical exam and also radiographs. The radiographs will help us to see whether or not they have arthritis, if that's a problem. Sure. X-rays can tell you a whole yeah. bunch about that. All right. We've got time for one more caller. We've got a very patient, John from Nanakule. John, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Hi there. What can we do for you? I just had a question. I know we were talking about orthopedics earlier, and I apologize if we already spoke about this, but I was wondering what your guys' perspective of sort of minimalist shoes are, or I have some nice higher-end leather shoes that just kind of have 
a leather sole and a leather insole. Or whenever I go running, I use um, like zero drops or things that are designed specifically not to support but to strengthen um, the foot, I guess. What were your kind of thoughts on that? That's interesting, John, because I've heard about some of those minimalist shoes, even people, some people saying, you know, running barefoot because they want to get back to the normal structure of the foot and strengthen it in different areas. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I wear a very comfortable, supportive pair of SAS shoes I love, but I don't know. What are minimal, minimalist shoes, Dr. Karen? Good, bad? I, you know, that's a good point. And minimalist shoes work for some for the exact reason why you like them. It's you want to strengthen the muscles in your feet. Um, you want to simulate a barefoot type walking, but it's not for everyone. If you have a short, uh, tight heel cord because you've been wearing high heels for a long time, you're not going to be comfortable in a minimalist shoe. If you have arthritis in your in the midfoot, you're not going to probably be, be comfortable in a minimalist shoe. But if you are a person that is pretty flexible, um, you've been active, and you've been walking around barefooted for most of your life or wearing slippers like we do in Hawaii, it's probably not too big of a transition. Um, so really it depends uh, on the person. Um, and when they talk about minimalist shoes, if you if you want to try, there is when you uh, read Runner's World type recommendations, all these running magazines, they always recommend a break in period of three to four months to prevent so like- injury. John, you wear these all the time. You love them. Your feet feel good? Yeah, definitely. So I was kind of wondering, it sounds like you wouldn't necessarily recommend them for any type of remediation if you have pain in the foot to transition into something more minimalist to strengthen. I mean, not necessarily. Exactly. And if you uh, read the literature on the minimalist shoes, they also, uh, if you haven't worn them before, you also have to change the way that you run. So there's a transition not only to for the shoe, but it's also a change in the way that you're running. And if you, um, you can do more research on that, even when uh, research, just looking at the manufacturing, the shoes, because they're, they want patients to safely transition to this minimalist shoe. So they talk about how to change their gait and the running. Well, it's an important point is if you love them, and your feet don't hurt, you're probably pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. If your feet feel great at the end of the day, you don't feel like there's pinching from your shoes and, you know, your feet have enough space and you never have that trouble, then you're probably wearing the right size shoe and you're probably doing the right stuff. But a lot of folks deal with a lot of chronic pain in their feet. And, you know, boy, Lynn brought up a good point. It might not just be the foot. Absolutely. Lots of good information that I feel we've gotten today. You know, I feel like we could just have the body show just on feet. <laughs> and and unfortunately, you know, the rest of the body is important. But there's so much to, to discuss regarding wearing the right shoes and, and wearing wearing the right type of, of shoes indoors, outdoors, making sure you check on your feet. Lots of good information. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Dr. Karen. Thank you for having me. It was was uh had a great time. Thank you. And we'll have to have you back because there's so much to discuss about. <laughs> we had a whole list of things we didn't even get to, so we'll have to do it again. If you want to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Dr. Karen Yamaguchi works at Kaiser Permanente, and she helps see folks there with foot problems, and she can be reached through Kaiser. If you're interested in the Blue Zones Project Hawaii, you can check that out. You can Google it or check out on HMSA's website. Our engineer today is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week for our best of show during Pledge Week. That's 5 p.m. Monday right here on The Body Show. 